Welcome to Inspirational Tales. When my guests on this podcast experience the most challenging times of their lives, they use these hardships to learn, grow and better themselves. And as a result, they are now thriving in life. Their stories are ones of resilience, strength and overcoming adversity. So sit back and join me as we celebrate them turning their challenges into triumphs. My guest today is Michelle Eric Yellow. When Michelle was 24 years old, she was hit by an out-of-control car, which instantly amputated her leg. With her wedding only 10 months away and while she was still in hospital, Michelle started setting herself goals, initially starting small and then working up to her three main goals, which were to walk down the aisle at her wedding, dance her wedding waltz and run. She was told over and over again that these were not possible, but she persisted until she found the right people who could help her. Not only did Michelle walk down the aisle, dance at her wedding and run, but she went on to break the 100 metres and 200 metres sprinting world records in her class and represented Australia at the London 2012 Paralympic Games. Michelle is a true testament for why it is so important to believe in yourself, to advocate for yourself, and to set goals and go after them. On a side note, please excuse the changing audio quality in this interview as we did have some technical difficulties whilst recording this episode and had to use multiple devices. I know it won't take away from the amazing story that Michelle has to share. Hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. How are you? Good, Jess. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So if we could start back at the beginning. So when you were 24 years old, obviously you had an accident that we're going to talk about today. Mm-hmm. But can you take us back to before the accident, say in your early 20s, and explain what you were like and what your life was like at that time? In my early 20s, I was pretty laid back. So just kind of taking life as it came, even as a teenager, you know, I would just kind of plot along. I was academic at school, but nothing really phased me. I didn't really have any interest in much. Like there wasn't a something that really sparked my interest enough to go to uni. So it was just when I finished school, I went straight into the workforce. I did love real estate, always loved real estate, even as a teenager. So that was just kind of a natural progression for me. So I finished school and then started working in real estate. On a Saturday in February 2007, you had an accident at work. Can you explain to us what happened on that day? Yeah, so it was kind of like a normal Saturday in the office in a real estate agency. All the agents were out, they're at their opens or at their auctions. I used to, on a Saturday morning, bring the big green wheelie bins in from outside and uh, I used to throw out all the rubbish. So I'd just you know, go around into all the agents' offices and just throw out rubbish. And it was about 45 minutes before I was meant to finish work that day. And I went to take the green, big green wheelie bin back outside and it lived behind the office in the driveway. And next to the office driveway was a laneway. And this laneway continued across the street. So when I stepped out of the office with the green wheelie bin, I noticed that there was a car on the same side of the street as me, so next to the driveway that I was heading to, and it was in the laneway and it was reversing backwards. And I remember looking at the driver and she looked to her left and she looked to her right. She didn't actually look behind her. And directly behind her was another car in the laneway across the street and he was already reversing. So the first thought that went through my head was, okay, these two cars are going to hit. Um, so as she started reversing, sure enough, she hit her car into the other the other one. And I didn't think much of it because, you know, that kind of thing unfortunately happens often, especially in car parks. So I continued to walk up the street with my green wheelie bin and then I could hear like this loud revving sound. So I looked to see where that was coming from because I obviously knew it was coming from the car um, that had just backed into another and that car was coming straight at me so there was literally you know a hundred different thoughts that went through my mind at that split second and it was literally a split second because we were in this small little side straight I saw how quickly the car was coming towards me and I knew I knew without you know without fail that that car was going to hit me but all I kept thinking was that I've got to do everything I can to save myself and I remember all I got to do was turn to my left to try and run and this car just smashed straight into me and then I'm lying on the bonnet of the car. So how did the car hit you? How did it end up being where you were? So what had happened was, so when she reversed into the other car, she was obviously in reverse, she panicked and put her car into drive and that revving sound was she had her, well, 
both feet, one on the brake and one on the accelerator. So that's why the roving sound was happening and she had taken her foot off the brake and basically her foot was to the floor of the accelerator and that's why she just came flying at me so quickly. Wow. So she hit you. You're pinned between the car Mm -hmm. and the wall. What was the first thing that went through your head? The first thing that went through my head was, damn, I wanted to be wrong. Like I wanted that car so badly not to hit me and I knew it was and I really wanted to be wrong. And then pain. Then the pain hit me. It was actually before the pain hit me, there was this dead eerie silence for for a couple of seconds. It was just so dead quiet. And then pain hit me in my right leg and I just started screaming. I started screaming for help. I knew not to look down. So whatever, you know, damage was done, like I knew there was damage done to my right leg and I knew whatever damage was done, I was not going to look down that I just, I had to get somebody there to help me. This is one thing I find amazing about your story is that you didn't look at your leg. I can't imagine ever not doing that to see what was going on. But you did that to protect yourself. Is that right? So you could cope better? Yeah, absolutely. So I knew there was damage. And see, I've never been good with blood, needles. You know, I when I got my ears pierced, I fainted twice. Oh. So like I'm never good with pain, nothing like that. So I thought whatever damage is done to my leg, I don't want to see. Obviously, there was a feeling there and the feeling was like a really severe, squashed, crushed feeling. So I thought my leg was paper thin. And because I was between the brick wall of work and the bonnet of the car, I seriously thought my leg was severely squashed and I was not looking down to see this paper thin leg because I I knew I'd freak out even more. So you're screaming for help now? Absolutely. Yeah. And almost immediately. So as soon as I started screaming for help, almost immediately, I felt someone by my right hand, like down where my leg was. So I felt someone's presence. I kind of didn't, again, I didn't look to see who it was or who was there because I was too scared of seeing anything to do with my leg. But I felt a presence and I felt someone working on me. So I straight away, I calmed down. I just, something within me thought, okay, there's someone there. They know what they're doing. I'm going to be okay. Now you actually, well, the car actually amputated your leg, even though you didn't know this at the time. And the person that was helping you happened to be an off-duty fireman. Yeah. So when I started screaming for help, there was an off-duty fireman who was having lunch two doors away from my workplace. Um, So as soon as he heard that he came running and then later on I found out his name was Ben Russell and yeah he was just having lunch a couple of doors away and yeah heard the accident scene and came running up the street. How did he actually help you? He tried a tourniquet because my leg had been amputated I was bleeding out so he tried a tourniquet and that didn't work so he ended up putting his hand up my thigh and holding that main artery closed until the paramedics arrived 10 minutes later. Another thing I found out like post-accident was that if, obviously, if that main artery is severed, you bleed out and die within five minutes or so, four to five minutes. And if it's a hot day, and that day was actually 38 degrees. So you, when it's hot, you bleed out and you die within two to three minutes. So Ben absolutely ended up saving my life. Oh, wow. That is amazing. Do you consider yourself lucky then? Obviously, you were in the wrong place at the wrong time for the car to hit you. But had he not been there, you wouldn't be alive now. Yeah, absolutely. I can consider myself lucky. And, you know, I've gone through this so many times in my head, right down to, you know, that initial accident, there was two cars in it. There was, you know, a large four-wheel drive and the car that ended up hitting me was a 1993 Mitsubishi Magda so those type of vehicles they had a really low bonnet so when the car hit me it ended up hitting just below my knee so if it had been the four-wheel drive it would have you know because I'm only five foot one so it would have probably hit me you know waist area so there's no chance I would have survived that you know so I was incredibly lucky as far as what car ended up hitting me but then yeah to have an off-duty fireman and not only that so Ben's was an off-duty fireman and he's he's a fireman but it wasn't the fiery training that gave him the knowledge 
what to do to save me. He, prior to being a fireman, he used to do outdoor education at a high school. So he used to take students out and teach them outdoor education and survival. That was actually that knowledge that he had that ended up saving my life. So he was the person you needed at that time, 100%. 100%, yeah, absolutely. So did you actually meet him afterwards? Is that how you found this out? Yes. So we met up after I'd gotten out of hospital and rehab, probably a couple of weeks after I'd got home, that he ended up coming to our place. Because when my accident happened, I was working with my now husband, um, but we were engaged at the time. So he was at an auction when the accident happened and someone from my workplace called him and he was literally, Mark was literally about to start an auction and it was his very first auction. And he was literally just like got the crowd gathered in, got the phone call and just bolted. So Mark ended up getting to the workplace before the ambulance did and he saw Ben there, he didn't know who he was. He saw Ben there. Mark actually even saw my leg lying on the ground and Mark ended up coming to the hospital with me. So because Mark saw the scene, he knew that there was someone there that was helping. Mark somehow tracked him down. I don't know how, but yeah, somehow my family, whilst I was in hospital, tracked Ben down to obviously say thank you. They ended up meeting at a pub and and there was also another man there who, so while Ben was working on me, there was another man, he was an Irish man called Declan and he was kind of helping to keep me calm and distracted and just asking me a crap load of questions, which at the time annoyed me, but now I understand why he was annoying me. It was to keep me awake. And yeah, they ended up meeting at the pub on a Saturday night while I was in hospital. And But yes, we did end up catching up later on with both Ben and Declan. And to this day, we still catch up. Yeah, oh, that's great. Such lovely people around, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so the ambulance eventually came yes. and took you to hospital. When did you actually realise that your leg was gone? It wasn't until I had got to hospital. Like I remember talking to the paramedic. There was a female paramedic in the back with me when I was taken to hospital and I remember saying to her, can you tell the doctors to do everything they can to save my leg? Because obviously didn't know it was gone. And she said, look, I don't know if that's going to be possible. So I started going into shock and she's then she quickly like was, saying to me not don't worry don't worry I'll do I'll do everything I can so then when we got to hospital I didn't know too much about how hospitals work but I was smart enough to know that there's always a head doctor so I knew I had to find out who my head doctor was so I was taking in for x-rays and there was lots of assessment done prior to the surgery so everyone that kind of came up to me I was asking them are you my main doctor because I knew I had to find my main doctor and then once I finally found who he was I said to him look can you please do everything you can to save my leg and then he told me I'm sorry it's already gone I remember just like being in shock but then just bursting into tears because it was up to that point that I literally thought my leg was still there I thought it was crushed it was squashed I was getting it reconstructed there was a small chance I might have to amputate it so yeah it wasn't until that point that I was told that my leg was already gone. Um, So I just remember bursting into tears and then just trying to work out, well, when? When did that happen? Because I obviously didn't know on impact my leg was uh, had been amputated. Um, So then I was trying to, you know, work out. Well, I remember going for x-rays. There was a time there that I can't remember because I was probably asleep. I had blacked out. Was it then that I was taken into surgery? So nothing made sense to me. And then it wasn't until like five days later that I kept quizzing my family. When was my leg gone? And they they didn't want to tell me. I think they were too scared to kind of tell me when I had lost my leg and how I had lost it. I think they were concerned with how my mental, my emotional state was at the time. And I remember some accident happened on the Saturday and it wasn't until the Thursday that I finally pieced it all together and I said that my leg was gone at the accident wasn't it and that's when um, my family told me that it was. Wow that must be so confusing and terrifying and I'm presuming you were on a lot of painkillers and drugs as well so probably making you a bit foggy. 
Yeah. So obviously, initially, when I got into the ambulance, I was highly medicated. And I was until, I remember until the Wednesday, actually, because I wanted a pair of crutches because every time I needed to go to the bathroom, I had to buzz a nurse who then like took half an hour to come. And then I needed to wait for another half an hour for a wheelchair. And I was sick and tired of that. So I really wanted a pair of crutches. And I remember on the Wednesday thinking, like I looked at my arms and my arms were like totally, you know, plugged in with IV drips and stuff. And I thought, well, there's no chance I'm going to get crutches if I'm connected to all these tubes and whatnot. So on the Wednesday, I decided, okay, from now on, like, you know, in hospital, you get the little green morphine button that you can press if you need more morphine. I remember thinking, okay, I'm not going to press that anymore so I can get these tubes taken out of me. Out of me. And then 24 hours later on the Thursday morning, they took all the tubes out of me because I had seen that I hadn't pushed that button for 24 hours. And I'm like, yep, I'm not in pain anymore. Take it all out. And I think that's when I started to get clarity and started then piecing together what had actually happened. So was this post-surgery? Because you had surgery for them to clean up and properly amputate your leg. I did. So what had happened, so on the Saturday when I arrived in hospital, they must have done, and I don't recall, but they must have taken me into some kind of a quick surgery just to address the actual trauma because I remember when the doctor said to me your leg's already gone I actually remember sitting up and seeing that my leg was gone but there was this huge white bandage over the top of it so I was obviously they obviously attended to it at some point and yeah they took me into surgery so the normal procedure is you know they'll clean up the trauma and you're in and out of surgery in about an hour but my surgery went for 13 hours So I found out that Ben, the off-duty fiery, he had arranged for my leg to be put on ice and it was brought to the hospital with me in hopes that it could be reattached. But there was just too much damage caused. So if they had reattached it, I would have been quite a deal shorter on my right side. So they decided that wasn't an option. But I spoke with my plastic surgeon weeks later and she told me she was a lovely lovely lady in her she looked like she was in her late 30s and she told me that there was my leg sitting up on one of the tables and she kept staring at this leg in the surgery and she could see these freshly painted red toenails and she goes and I remember your leg was like perfectly waxed (laughs) so she's like okay this girl takes pride in the way she looks we can't just do what we normally do which is you know clean up the trauma and off you go like we've got to put more effort into this and she had heard about a recent surgery that was performed in America it had been performed three times in America but never in Australia so what had happened is they would take the heel bone from the foot and then fuse it on the end of my leg So when you're an amputee, you either bear weight through your knee, which that makes you a below knee amputee, or you bear weight through your bum. But because uh, when the car hit me, it amputated my leg through the knee, I was through the knee amputee, but I I wouldn't have been able to weight bear because half my knee was gone um, and the part that was left, I couldn't weight bear on it. So they ended up taking the heel out of my foot and fusing that to the end of my leg to give me that weight bearing surface and if you can bear weight through the knee you can essentially walk you know for 10 20 years longer than if you can't wow they also they put nerves at the bottom too they did so to close that up they actually took the skin off my foot and they fused and they like close it up with the skin of my foot but an amputee ideally needs to be able to feel what's going on at the bottom of their stump because if they can't then you know there could be blisters and that can turn into all sorts of dramas. So what this the plastic surgeon did after she attached the skin of my foot she also got four main nerves from my foot and attached those to nerves in my leg Um, And then she explained nerves is kind of like plant roots. So you'll start with four main nerves and then it will just start spreading and you should eventually have feeling everywhere. Oh, wow. Okay. That's pretty amazing. (laughs) Yeah. So, And it was really bizarre because they sent me to a hand therapist. So after I left the hospital, because the one that I saw, they 
deal with a lot of hand trauma due to you know different trades and the plastic surgeon I had that she does a lot of hand trauma and those patients lose a lot of sensation in their hands so she sent me to this hand therapist who worked on my like the residual limb and the skin of the foot to try and get those nerves stimulated and most of that was done um, via ultrasound which was interesting it's pretty amazing isn't it what they can do now yeah absolutely it's crazy but that's fantastic for you (laughs) yeah absolutely so you can now feel the whole bottom of your stump I can and the main question they always were asking me was are you feeling your foot or are you feeling your leg and I actually feel my foot. Oh, like it's on the bottom of your, oh, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really bizarre. And sometimes I'm like, oh, my toes are like really itchy or my heels really itchy and there's kind of, you know, technically there's no toe there and there's no heel. Well, there is a heel, but, yeah, the, the nerves are there and that's what I'm still feeling, the nerves from the toes or, you know, or I'm like, oh, the arch of my foot's really itchy. But, yeah, so it's really bizarre how it works. So recovering from this, you were meant to be in hospital for quite a few months. You didn't want a bar of that, did you? <laughs> <laughs> no, look, I, look, to be honest, I have really great doctors in hospital and I keep referring to my plastic surgeon because she was amazing and she was kind of all for whatever I wanted to do. So, you know, I had a good chat with her and it was about a week after I'd been there and I said, I don't know what I'm still doing in here. Like, I know I've still got to go to rehab, but is there anything else I still need to do in hospital? Like, why can't I leave? And she's like, well, if you feel like you can leave, then, you know, I'll make the referral. And as soon as there's a spot in rehab, off you go. So she was brilliant. Initially, they did say, so the day I did come in from my accident, they did tell my family that I'd be in hospital for approximately six months because that's the normal recovery time after the trauma I'd been through. So, yeah, a week after, you know, I had made plans to leave and then a bed opened up at the rehab hospital on the Wednesday. So it was 10 days after my accident that I went into rehab and I had to go via ambulance. And I remember when the paramedics, like I was in a wheelchair and the paramedics wheeled me into the rehab hospital and like the double glass doors opened to this rehab and this just like revolting smell of mushroom soup just like hit me in the face and I seriously I just thought oh like I just couldn't cope with the smell and I just knew I just am not going to cope in this place again deep down in my head I'm thinking I don't know why I need to be here I knew technically I had to be there because my home wasn't set up for me um, like I didn't have crutches I didn't have a wheelchair um, they wanted to put grab rails around my bathroom area so I knew I had to go to rehab because home wasn't a safe place at that time so they needed to do a home assessment and so forth but other than that I couldn't work out why I needed to be there but I remember like the doctors coming in and he was actually the main prophetess and he came in and he said to me now I know you got out of hospital really quickly but it's not going to happen here you need to be realistic because you're going to be in here for six months and you know I kept in the back of my mind I'm thinking I don't know why the hell I still need to be like why like it doesn't make sense to me but I didn't say that all I said was you know what I'm going to be out of here in nine days time so that's like by next Friday so it's your job to help get me out by next Friday and I also said that to like you know nutrient like the first day I arrived I was inundated with all this medical stuff so you know dietitians and physios and nurses and other doctors and pain specialists and I said to all of them like your job's to get me out by next Friday I'm leaving by next Friday and every single one of them said the same thing to me no you're not you're going to be in here for six months but yeah I was not I was not having a bar of it. (laughs) Now you actually left earlier than that didn't you? Yeah after seven days so I went in on the Friday on the Wednesday and I was out on the Wednesday. Now how did you manage to do that? I was very loud in what I wanted to do. (laughs) (laughs) I was, and I just kept saying, but tell me why I need to be in here. Like, it doesn't make sense. Oh, you've got to do rehab. Okay, I'm doing rehab, you know, for an hour in the morning and the hour and a half in the afternoon. Why can't I just be an outpatient doing that? So, unfortunately, the rehab hospital 
I went to, it was under the public system, but I came in as a private patient because my accident happened at work and I was hit by a car. I was either going to be compensable on um, work cover or TAC. So technically I'm a private patient and they do get a lot more money from private patients. So the longer they had me in rehab, the more money they would have received, which was very cheeky. And it wasn't something until like way down the track that that was explained because, you know, I never stopped asking questions even when I left rehab. I'm like, why do they want to keep me in? And then when I was trying to find another prophetess, because the prophetess that was at that rehab hospital told me, you know, I'm not going to be walking down the aisle come December, even though my accident happened in Feb, there's no chance I'll dance and forget about the dream of ever running because that's simply never going to happen. So I knew I couldn't see the prophetess at that rehab centre. And then every time I went to another rehab hospital, I was I kept getting the same vibe. Oh, no, the only way we're going to um, be able to assist you is if you become an inpatient. And it, I just kept getting that same reoccurring theme because I'm, you know, a private patient that's compensated. They would get money, so they needed me. They or they wanted me as an inpatient because I'd make so much money by me being in there. So yeah, I ended up just finding a prophetess who was brilliant. He was private, and yeah, I ended up you know connecting and having a good connection with him straight away, and didn't didn't bother with any more rehab hospitals. So can you explain to us this goal setting? Mm. So you just said the three things there that you wanted to do. You wanted to walk down the aisle at your wedding. You wanted to dance at your wedding and you wanted to run. Absolutely. So a part of this, since the hospital, actually, you started goal setting, whether it was something small like eating to these bigger goals. Can you explain to us the process that you went through to start setting those goals? Yeah, absolutely. So when my accident happened in February, like I was getting, like my wedding and everything was already planned for December that year. And I literally had planned the whole wedding prior to my accident and there was no way I was going to postpone it, especially because it was still 10 months away. Like I knew I could do this. So I set the goal of um, when I was in hospital, I set the goal, well, come December, I need to walk down the aisle. I need to dance my wedding waltz and eventually I wanted to be able to run. So, yeah, it started the very first goal I ended up setting was I remember the Tuesday night. It was four nights after my accident that whole kind of Monday and Tuesday, Mark was feeding me because I was so I was so exhausted, and he he kept feeding me my food. And the nurse, one of the one of the nurses at the hospital, pulled Mark aside and said to him, "You know, you're not doing Michelle any favors by feeding her. She needs to get her own strength back. So you need to stop doing that, and she's got to feed herself." So he relayed that conversation to me, and then. When Mark and my family went home that night, I decided that when breakfast arrives tomorrow morning, I'm going to eat it on my own. And so Wednesday morning when my porridge rolled in, you know, I was sitting up and I was eating breakfast and my my breakfast always came at 8 o'clock in the morning and as did Mark. So as I'm eating my breakfast, in walks Mark and he just like literally just stops dead in the doorway and with his mouth on the ground almost and I realised that for me that was really one of, you know, the most defining moments of my whole life because it was the first time that I'd actually set a goal. Prior to that, I never really set a goal. I just kind of plodded along. But that was the first time I'd set a goal. I had achieved it. And then I saw how it affected someone else so positively. Um, and that's when I started setting other goals, which was, you know, as we discussed, getting the tube taken out of my arms so that I could have my crutches and once I had got those tubes taken out, you know, I asked to see the physio. No, I asked for a pair of crutches and the nurse said to me, oh, no, you've got to see the physio first. We can't give you crutches. You've got to get it off that off the physio. And I said, well, can I see the physio then? And that was the Thursday morning. And she said, oh, look, he's not going to be available until next week. And I said, no, look, I really need crutches. I really need to see him. So she ended up, he was doing rounds anyway on the ward, so she ended up calling him. And he came in and I said, look, I really want crutches. And he said, it hasn't even been a week since your accident. There's no chance you're getting crutches. And I said, no, I I really need crutches. Like I can do this. I really want them. And he said, okay, I'll come back tomorrow. I'll assess you and we'll see how we go. So when Friday morning rolled around and the first thing he said to me was like, now, Michelle, I just want you to know you're not getting your crutches because you're moving way too fast. Tomorrow is a week. Um, since your accident so getting crutches now is way too soon and so I said to him how about I make a deal with you if you give me crutches 
then I'll go at your pace. But I'm not going at your pace until I get my crutches. And, of course, in the back of my head, I'm thinking, I'm making this deal, but there's no way I'm going to stick to it. Like, if I get my crutches, then I'm moving on to the next thing. And he's like, all right, go down the parallel bars and back up and we'll see how your balance is. And went down, back up, and he, like, literally just presented me with my crutches straight away. He's like, okay, here you go. You can have them. So from there, you know, the next natural thing was to get out of hospital. So that's when I had that chat with my plastic surgeon about leaving because I knew I kind of had to also get out of hospital and get out of rehab as soon as I could because I had to start being able to walk. I knew that there was going to be a long process ahead of me, which wasn't going to happen overnight. It would be weeks, if not months. And it was already March by this stage. So I knew I just had to, you know, keep pushing because otherwise time would have gone away from me. So once you went home, what was that like for you? Um, that's when reality hit, actually, because when you're in hospital and you're in rehab, everything's done for you. you there's no need to do anything. Everything's brought to you on a tray. And I remember getting home and I went to get a glass of water and I went on my crutches to the kitchen to get this glass of water, but then I realised I couldn't get my glass back to the couch because um, I was wanting to kind of drink my glass of water on the couch. So that's when reality hit that it was the first time I actually felt disabled. It had been two and a half weeks since the accident and it was literally the first time that the disability actually hit me because I physically couldn't bring this glass back to the um, lounge room. And I remember just bursting into tears and it was a mixture between like sadness due to the loss of the leg. There was also a lot of anger there and I went straight into my bedroom and I literally just opened up my my drawers and my like wardrobe and I'm throwing out all my dresses, all my skirts, all my shorts and I'm just throwing them behind my head and my sister was there and my auntie was there and I was telling them to pack it all up because I'm never going to need these things again because I'm never going to be wearing dresses and shorts and skirts again. I was literally going to be in pants for the rest of my life. So, yeah, the first couple of days home was tough. I was, you know, coming to terms with the new me, but also then starting to learn a bit more about the events surrounding my accident as well. So, you know, not only physically difficult, but also definitely quite emotionally and mentally difficult to those first couple of days. At that time, did you know anyone who was an amputee or who had a physical disability? No. Like, honestly, I was the first amputee I had ever met. When I was in hospital, though, my family did contact a, an amputee support group called Limbs for Life and this lovely lady called Mel. She came out to visit me when I was in hospital because she had lost her leg two years prior and when she had lost her leg she found that there was no support there for her so that prompted her to start this group so that was brilliant like she came out and um, we had a good good chat and yeah she put me in contact with some other people so we kind of formed a little bit of a friendship there as well but yeah prior to my accident I literally never met an amputee and you know you come across other disabled people in life so there may have been, you know, one or two kids at school, that kind of thing, but no one ever in my close network of people. So you had to kind of learn as you were going with everything. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Look, my family were phenomenal. They were doing so much research. And, like, I know that I wouldn't have been able to walk down the aisle if it wasn't for all the research they were doing. Like, they were – all I really had to do was concentrate on myself and my own – rehabilitation whereas in the background they were doing all the research like what's you know the best prosthetic leg on the market how do we get this you know how soon can you expect to walk all that kind of thing so yeah that that was absolutely priceless to me being able to walk down the aisle because they were my knowledge base so they worked out what I needed and then we went out and sourced who could give me the leg that I actually needed and wanted. Now, this was quite a challenge for you to find someone who could do that. Yeah, it was. So because of the surgery that was performed on me, as I said, it was the first time it performed on anyone in Australia. So it turned out no prothetist had ever 
fit a prosthetic leg to someone with that type of surgery, to a heel bone at the end of their stump. No one had ever fit a leg, a prosthetic to that. So no one put their hand up to say, you know what, I don't know how to do it, but I'm willing to try. All they kept saying to me was that you can't have a prosthetic leg fit to you. You need to amputate, get your leg re-amputated. And this prosthetist that I spoke about earlier when I was in the rehab hospital, the one that I didn't like, he actually initially came to visit me when I was in hospital. And he said, look, there's no chance you can have a prosthetic leg fit to you. And behind my back, he went and he booked me in for revision surgery. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And my plastic surgeon came to me. She's like, Michelle, you're booked in for surgery next week. Like, uh, what are you talking about? And she said, yeah, you're getting, you've decided on revision like amputation. I said, I never did this. So yeah, the cheeky bugger went behind my back because he automatically assumed that I was going to get my leg fitted by him, but he didn't know how to fit me. So he booked me in for revision surgery. So that was another reason why I knew there was no chance yes. I was going to have him as my prosthetist. But at the time, I, I didn't understand the difficulty behind fitting me with a leg. All that kept going through my head was, you know, the surgeon had an option to clean up the trauma and have me in and out of surgery within an hour, but they didn't. They spent 13 hours on me and most of them got called in on that Saturday afternoon. So they weren't even, it wasn't even as if they were on duty. They got called in. So to me, it didn't make sense that these people came and did a 13-hour surgery when they didn't have to and there had to be a really good reason behind it, which at the time I didn't understand. I just knew that I couldn't have revision surgery until I'd found out all the facts first. And that's when I found out that, you know, it gives you a better quality of life. So the surgery they did was a better quality of life. So when I needed to find a prosthetist, and we ended up seeing, um, so my sister, Mark and myself, we saw three specialists or professional medical professionals a day for a full month oh wow that's a lot yeah it was it was exhausting I had those goals to walk dance and run and everybody was telling me no 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 like yeah maybe you'll walk down the aisle more likely than not dad's going to wheel you down in a wheelchair that was just the recurring answer I kept getting and to me, it just was not going to happen. Like I was on YouTube, I saw amputees walking, dancing, running, and I couldn't fathom why I can't do this. So we were seeing, you know, not only providers, but we were seeing orthopedic surgeons. We saw a lot of, of medical professionals because I just kept getting told no. And then I remember it was after three and a half weeks of hearing that, my brother gave me a call and he's like, oh, I found this really amazing guy and he's in East Burwood. Now, at the time, I lived in Essendon. And East Burwood to Essendon on a good run is, or Essendon to East Burwood on a good run is about 40, 45 minutes. Um, so my brother told me, look, I've booked you in to see Kevin at 2 o'clock on a Friday afternoon. So Melbourne traffic, there's no chance I'm going from Essendon to East Burwood at 2 o'clock on a Friday afternoon to be told, no, you're not walking down the aisle. No, you're not dancing. And no, you're never going to run. So I said to my brother, I'm not going to go see him. Forget about it. Cancel the appointment. And he said, no, you don't understand. He sounds really good and he's really confident that he can help you. Like, you've really got to see him. And I said, well, if this Kevin thinks he's so great, tell him to come to my house. And my brother says to me, like, what? I'm like, yeah, well, if Kevin's so great, tell him to come to my house because I'm not going to bother with him. And then, you know, we had this little bit of a chit chat. And I was like, really, what do you want me to tell him? Like you really, you you really tell him that because I'm done. So he get he gets off the phone and he calls me about five minutes later and he's like, Kevin's coming to your house at two o'clock on Friday afternoon. <laughs> and I literally said, Ah, oh, well, if this man wants to waste his time, I don't have to be <laughs> Where did you get this assertiveness from that you've had through this whole experience? I don't know if we put it down to assertiveness or frustration. I think definitely at that point it was. I was so frustrated there was you know I had only kind of met one prosthetist in that three and a half weeks that could potentially have been a prosthetist and he said yes to walking he said yes to dancing but no to running so I still needed to find so he was a potential to help me be able to achieve goal one and two but I really wanted someone to help me achieve all three goals so yeah it was a crap load of frustration and the anger 
of losing my legs, the anger towards the driver who hit me, it was literally just building up. As the days went on, the anger was building up toward her. So I, I don't think at that stage I would have put it down to assertiveness. It was probably more aggression because I was so frustrated mm. and so angry. So how did you keep hopeful though? Everyone's telling you, no, 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 this is not possible. How did you actually believe and keep up the hope that it was going to be possible when everyone's telling you no? YouTube. <laughs> like oh. literally, I thought, it was YouTube. I'm like, why are these people doing it? Like I couldn't fathom why. And then my family was saying to me, if we need to go to America or we need to go to whoever uh, Heather Mills sees in the UK, we're going. Like, we will get you walking down the aisle. If this person isn't in Australia, we will go overseas for it. So, yeah, we were prepared to go to that point because we knew it was possible, but we're getting blocked by people's lack of ability to be able to do it so kevin said yes (laughs) kevin said yes so kevin came over and kevin said yes so obviously like i just literally cut straight to the point i'm like you know will i walk down the aisle come december and he's like you're going to be walking as soon as i make you a leg and i was quite taken back by that and then i said what about dancing i want to dance my wedding waltz and he said well did you dance before and I really like that answer. And then I said to him, well, what about running? Like, I, I want to run. And he said, you know, running is going to be really hard because you don't have your own knee joint. And when you don't have your own knee joint, you need to rely on a mechanical knee and you will have a lot of falls. But if you want to stick to running, I don't, I don't see why, why you can't run. So, yeah, Kevin became my prophetess. So why was he able to do it when no one else here could? He was quite new to the industry so his background was as a carpenter so he was quite quite hands-on he had teamed up with another prophetess that was quite innovative that had been in the industry for many many years and I just think that Kevin just he had the drive as well simply I think being new to the industry he was in Germany a lot, so the one of the main companies that makes prosthetics is called Otterbock, and Kevin spent a lot of time in Germany learning the trade. So, yeah, he was always trying to better himself, whereas others were just happy doing what they knew. But how long did it take you to get your leg? So because the heel bone needed to fuse properly onto the end of my stump, that didn't heal up until it healed up well. I didn't have any uh, issues with it, which was great. So it wasn't until July that I could start getting fitted for a prosthetic leg. So Kevin started making me a check socket to make sure everything worked. And then, so then by the time the surgeons gave me the all clear to weight bear properly, he was ready to go with a prosthetic leg. And I remember it was a Monday morning, you know, I, basically didn't sleep that whole weekend because I knew I was getting my getting my leg on the Monday and it again it was going to be a slow process because I couldn't I wouldn't be able to go from not walking since February to 100% weight bearing in July so I knew it was going to be a slow process that I'd start with crutches which was fine with me because I had to learn the balance anyway so picked up my leg on the Monday I was using two crutches at the time and then come the Monday night the kitchen I had at the time was quite small so I could like within a couple of steps I could get from one bench to the next so Monday night I put my crutches aside and was walking around in my kitchen oh that's fantastic yeah yeah so true to Kevin's word as soon as I make you a leg you'll be able to walk (laughs) so you were able to walk down the aisle and dance at your wedding. Absolutely. Yes, Dad walked me down the aisle. Dad didn't Aww. wheel me down in a wheelchair. Dad walked me down the aisle. I did dance my wedding waltz. And Kevin even came to my wedding dress fittings. <laughs> because I already had my dress made, I just needed the final, you know, like you don't go get your dress until like final fitting, you know, for a couple of weeks before. So, yeah, my dress that I had already had pre-accident, it was a like, mermaid style, so it was 
quite fitted and I knew the prosthetic leg, the, the socket part was going to stick out because it's oh, a hard okay. carbon fiber. So Kevin came and he made me a special leg just for my oh wedding my day gosh. that would fit under, under my dress and I could even wear heels with it. Oh, I love it. <laughs> That's amazing. <Yes. laughs> so the other goal you had was to run. Were you a runner before the accident? No. Nah. <laughs> so why did you want to run? When I say a runner, I was fit and I was healthy and I did love going jogging. So after work, I often went for a run um, if I, or if I felt stressed. I loved to pound the ground and that was my stress relief. So again, not being able to walk, you know, those first few months when I was used to, if I'm frustrated, I'm going for a run and pounding the ground. You know, that, that's why I also had so much frustration built up because I wasn't getting that energy release that I needed. So, yeah, for me, running was going to be more about mentally rehabilitating. Not It wasn't a physical thing. It was mentally. And because I kept getting told no, even Kevin saying, you know, it's going to be difficult, you can do it, but it's going to be hard. I needed to run so that I could be okay with my disability. You know, having spent 24 years with my own two legs, I'm so sorry about my dog barking in the background. That's okay. Um, having spent, you know, 24 years on my own two legs to suddenly be permanently disabled and an amputee, that was quite hard mentally. So I needed to be okay with that. So running was that mental goal that I needed. I wasn't expecting it to take me where it did. What was the process of learning to run? Because that's not as easy as walking and everyone said it's going to be more difficult. <laughs> yeah. How was that? So Kevin made me this running leg and it's your, you, you've probably seen them, it's that L-shaped carbon fibre or the blade leg, that the blade foot that they call it. Um, so he made it for me and I put it on and I couldn't even take one step in this thing. So like I picked up the walking really easily, but with this leg, I couldn't even take one step. And I said to Kevin, how do I walk? Like, what do I do? He's like, I don't know what you do. He goes, I just make the things. I don't know how to use them. <laughs> so then he suggested that I contact the Paralympic Committee, um, the Australian Paralympic Committee. And it was literally a month before the 08 Beijing Games. So I contacted them and they were just doing their last training session. That coming weekend was their last training session in Melbourne before they went off to camp and on to Beijing. So they said, look, come down to Frankston and let's see if we can help you get up and running. So Sunday morning, got up with my leg, my prosthetic leg, and went down to the track, met a whole bunch of lovely people. And within half an hour, I was up and running. And that was an amazing feeling. Like that was yeah. you know, the, the first time in seven months that I was running. And that felt, that felt really, really good. So again, it was more that mental, that, yeah, that mental rehabilitation I needed. I was incredibly sore after and I couldn't even walk after I had done that little running session. But yeah, it was very much worth it. So then that afternoon, after I had got home from Frankston, there was an email waiting for me from the Paralympic Committee and it said, look, give running a good go, see how you like it, like give it a good six months because if you like it, there's a chance you could enter into local competitions, nationals and then international competitions and potentially the London um, Paralympic Games in 2012. And like those four words, London Paralympic Games 2012, just like literally jumped out at me and I said to my family and to Mark, I said, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I know I'm going there. Like, I know I'm doing this. So mind you, I had never competed in anything in my life. I literally hated competition. I hated sport other than like keeping fit and healthy. I hated sport. In high school, had a whole stack of forged notes in the back of my diary because I got out of everything. <laughs> I hated it with a passion. <laughs> so, yeah, when I saw those words, um, London Paralympic Games 2012, I don't think my family really believed that I was going to do it and I was actually going to stick to it and work my butt off to get there. Now, was this because it was a challenge and another goal yes. that you could set? Yeah. And, again, it was, it was another more of a mental goal. It was about if I can do what most people cannot do as an amputee, then 
how can I be upset with losing my leg? Like I knew that if I had achieved this, then the loss of the leg would be no big deal. So you did achieve this, but you also broke world records. Like you went on to do amazing things. Could you take us through, so the next few years, I guess, with yeah. your running journey? So nine months after I started running, I went to my first international competition, which only happened to be up in Darwin. And they, Athletics Australia had a meeting with all the new athletes. So I was one of them. And the biggest takeaway I got from that meeting was that 10 years is needed to achieve greatness. 10 years? 10 years. Yep. In order to achieve greatness, you need to like give yourself 10 years. And I remember leaving that meeting. I went back to the hotel room, saw Mark, and I'm like, that's a load of crap. I don't have 10 years to achieve greatness. Like I'm 27. I'm not going to wait till I'm 37 to achieve greatness. Tomorrow I'm running the 200 metres and I'm going to break that world record. And I did. So that night, the, the next night I ran the 200 heat and I ended up breaking that 200 metre world record. So how long was this after you started running? Nine months. Nine months, not 10 Nine years. <laughs> not wow. 10 years, no. Like I needed it, I wanted it. But I only held it for literally 10 minutes because then my training partner ran in heat too. And she broke it straight up. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> so then that was the end of the season. That was the end of the athletic season. So then I said, I've got to get that 200 metre record back. So the next um, athletic season in January, um, I had a competition up in Sydney and I ended up breaking the 200 metre world record up in Sydney. And then in um, April, we had nationals. And I said to my family, well, I've got the 200 metre world record. Now I need 100 metres. And we were in Perth. We were going to Perth for nationals. And my girlfriend, who is a meteorologist, she looks at the weather patterns and she said, now I know because I've always been very vocal about what I wanted to do. And my girlfriend said to me, like, I know you're running on the Friday night and you're running on the Saturday afternoon. So the wind is in your favour on Friday night, but it's not in your favour on Saturday afternoon. So if you're going to break this 100 world record, you're better off going for it in your heat on the Friday night. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks to my girlfriend, Andrea, I ended up, yeah, doing as she said and breaking that 100-metre uh, world record on the Friday night in the heat. Well, congratulations. And thank you. And then you went on. So the 2012 London Paralympic Games you competed yes. in. I did, and things didn't go according to plan. Um, we had moved to Canberra. Um, I got a scholarship with the Australian Institute of Sport and Mark and I moved to Canberra. And because I'd moved to Canberra, I had to start seeing a new prophetist. So Kevin, I had to unfortunately say goodbye to Kevin. So then I started seeing a new prophetist and fitted me with a new walking leg and a new running leg. And for a number of weeks, I remember things just weren't, weren't making sense. Like I would put my leg on first thing in the morning. So normal for me is as soon as I wake up, put my prosthetic leg on, and it stays on all day until I go to bed, you know, at 10, 11 o'clock at night. And then I was finding that I couldn't get through my evenings. Like my, my stump was so sore, I had to take my leg off. And I remember saying to my coach, I don't know what's wrong because like there's nothing physically there that I can see. I just know that I can't wear my leg for as long as I would like. And then it got to the point where come dinner time, I would just manage to cook dinner and then I would just take my leg off. So, you know, we're talking six o'clock at night. I would just have to take this prosthetic off. I was still able to walk. I was still running really well, but I couldn't sit. If I sat for more than five minutes, I was in tremendous pain. So, like, I went to the doctors and couldn't see anything. And then on a Wednesday morning, I woke up and the stump, without a word of a lie, overnight it had blown up to three times its size. Oh. And I was like, oh, what the hell is going on here? Fortunately, because I did have a scholarship with the Australian Institute of Sport, I went straight to the AIS. I saw their doctors and they're like, you're going to have to go straight to hospital. Like, we can't help you here. So I went to Canberra Hospital. They did some tests and it turned out I had golden staff and I had the quite severe golden staff. And they turned around and they said to me, because of the surgery that was performed on you post-accident, we're not even going to attempt 
to try and remove this stuff out of your leg. You have to go to Melbourne. So I got back in contact with my plastic surgeon and I like flew back to Melbourne the next day. She ended up needing to perform three lots of surgery. So over a three week period, three lots of surgeries to try and get rid of this golden stuff. She did tell me that it's really, really close to the bone. So if it gets to the bone, she's going to have to amputate higher because that's the only way that we're going to get rid of it because it was incredibly aggressive. But fortunately, after the third surgery, she managed to clean it all out. But then I was on antibiotics for a year to try and ensure that it didn't flare up. So what had happened was after the accident, because I had no open wound, golden stuff you normally get if you have an open wound, and I had no open wound. So the only explanation that the doctors could come up with was that there must have been like a tiny, tiny piece of shrapnel left inside my leg after the accident. And with this new prosthetist, he didn't fit my leg properly. And the ill-fitting prosthetic leg rubbed against this shrapnel, causing the massive golden staff flare-up. So that was only one year before London. So that wasn't the plan. I was actually off a leg to, to the end of the year. For 2011, so the games were in 2012. And in 2011, I wasn't able to walk until December. I knew that I wasn't going to be able to achieve what I wanted to do in London. So obviously, once I had started breaking world records, naturally, I wanted to medal and break the world record in London. So when I, I literally just ended up qualifying for London, I just made the team because of, you know, all that time off the leg and off running, I wasn't at my peak fitness. Um, so I've managed to just make the team. And the night before my run, I, I think my coach could see, she could see I was quite nervous. And she said to me, what was your goal four years ago? And I said, it was to get to London. And she said, and to what? I said it was to get to London. And she's like, yeah, and what? I said, I don't know, it was just to get to London. And she said, exactly, your goal was to get to London. It wasn't to get to London and medal. It wasn't to, like originally, it wasn't to get to London and break a world record. Your goal was to get to London and look where you're at. You're at London and you're running tomorrow night. So just enjoy it. And then, you know, she went on to say that, you know, the stadium's going to be packed. There's never been that many spectators. Like there's 80,000 80, people in the stands. The Paralympics have never seen that many people ever in, a, in the stands. So she said, you will never, she goes, even if you go on to do another game, what's happening right now in London, you will never, ever experience again. So just go out there tomorrow night and enjoy your run. And I'm guessing you did? I did. <laughs> I went out. I went out. Walking out onto the track, I was ranked ninth in the world. So in the final, I ended up finishing fifth, and it was the best time I had actually run in two years. Oh, well done. Thank you. What an amazing experience. And after all that lead up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was great. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> So once you've achieved this goal, which is pretty massive, uh, so you've broken world, the two world records, 100 and 200 metres, you've gone to the Paralympic Games, can you keep setting bigger goals or <laughs> what do you do next? <laughs> Look, so initially, as I said, for me, I always knew that London was going to be my one and only Games that I went to because it wasn't about being an athlete. That was not the career I wanted. It was I needed to get to London so that I could be okay with the new me. Um, so I'd achieved that mental goal that I really needed to achieve. I felt so physically strong and mentally, emotionally strong. And when I started training, I got a strength that I didn't actually know existed. And I ended up shopping and buying all new dresses and skirts and shorts oh. because I didn't want to wear pants anymore. My prosthetic leg looked cool. It's computerized. It looks like an awesome leg and why not show it off? So yeah, I became quite mentally strong. And look, I was 30 at the time or almost 30 when I went to London. And for me, then it was about, you know, then moving on with the life that I guess I would have had, had I not lost my leg. Yeah. Which was to 
have children. That was, you know, what Mark and I wanted to do to have kids. So then that was going to be the next thing in life. So you're now a mum. Yeah. And you went on to start a business as well with your husband. Yes. Do you think what you've been through with your accident and all your goal setting and everything you've achieved, do you think that helped you with starting a business and moving on with your life? Oh, undoubtedly. So Mark and I have always been in real estate. Uh, Mark's been in it for a lot longer than than what I have been. But uh, Mark's a very soft, quiet person and he was doing sales and nothing against sales agents, but Mark's personality isn't kind of geared towards the sales side of things. He's an advocate essentially. So he likes to really help people. And then after we had our first child, he said to me, you know, I really want to do buyer's advocacy because I'm not really enjoying sales. I really want to do buyer's advocacy. And the only way I'm going to be able to do this is if we start our own business. So I said, all right, why not? Let's start making plans for it. And then on our daughter's first birthday, he said, look, like we had started our own business, but he was also working in sales as well, which wasn't quite working well. And so on our daughter's first birthday, he said to me, I think I've got to quit. I've got to quit sales. I've got to quit where I'm working and just solely concentrate on the buyer's advocacy. And I'm like, all right, let's just do it. We literally had one client. I wasn't working at the time. So for Mark to leave and not have an income and for us to literally have one client with a one-year-old daughter. Wow. I know I would have never, ever done that had had we have not gone through the past, you know, six years, what we had just gone through. Like I knew that we would make this work. Like I believed enough in Mark and I believed then in my abilities in real estate that we would make it work and we'd be able to do it. So you developed this strong belief in yourself and you've also started goal setting. So move forward in your life. Yeah. How else have you changed since the accident? Well, I'm very much a goal setter. As I said before, I would plot along in life. Um, I wasn't setting goals, but I was happy. But then, you know, after setting that first goal in hospital of eating breakfast, I realised how magical setting a goal and achieving it is and the amazing feelings it gives you inside when you actually achieve something you want to do And not only that, but it also has an effect on your loved ones as well. So very much into setting goals. I've uh, developed that assertive part that we were talking (laughs) about before, definitely more assertive. I'm still working out who I am, but I've got a stronger sense of who I am, of, you know, my strengths and my weaknesses. Like, for example, I'm a very, very black and white person. I don't have a diplomatic bone in my body. So that if we have a difficult client, I will just like seriously throw my hands up in the air and say, I said to Mark, I'm not dealing with that client because I will lose that person because I know that I don't know how to talk to them properly. This is your client now. And having said that, you know, Mark is so laid back that there's some clients that turn around and say, look, I need that real, you know, strong authority personality looking after my property. So then, you know, it works. So, yeah just being more confident with who I am and I guess having two daughters. I love that I have two girls because now I can show them that they don't look at me as a mum with a disability. They look at me as mum and sometimes someone will ask them a question about how do you feel that mum doesn't have a leg, you know, something along those lines and they look at the person asking the question like they're really puzzled because They know that I can do anything I want to do. Like it might be slightly different, but I can still do everything I want to do. And I love that I can now show my girls that anything you want to achieve in life, it doesn't matter, you know, what anybody says, professional or otherwise, it doesn't matter what anyone says, that if you deep down believe that you can achieve it, then then you really can. I love that. It's such a good lesson to teach them as well. Yeah. So I have one final question that I ask everyone before we wrap up. Thank you for taking the time to do this. I know it's gone a bit over because we've had some technical difficulties. (laughs) Thanks, Jess. (laughs) My final question is, if you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? 
probably the belief in yourself. I was a really shy kid. I remember always hiding behind my mum's leg. I was very quiet. But yeah, I'd probably tell myself to, you know, have confidence, believe in yourself and literally have a dream. Have, have a dream. I think everyone needs to have a dream, whether you're a child or an, an adult, you need to have a dream. And if you don't have that, how are you going to achieve greatness for yourself in life? Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. You're absolutely amazing. I've absolutely loved hearing it and talking to you. <laughs> thank you very much, Jessica. Good luck with everything in your future and with your business. And um, I'm sure you're going to go on to do more great things. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Inspirational Tales. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd love it if you could please share it with your family and friends so that we can inspire more people. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, please don't forget to leave us a rating or a view and make sure that you have subscribed or followed the podcast on whichever platform that you are listening to it on so that you can stay up to date as new episodes are released. Thanks again and I look forward to you joining me for the next episode of Inspirational Tales.